We are back on Inside the Hive. It's Joe Hagen here, your co-host, along with Emily Jane Fox. Hi, Emily. Hi. How are you doing? I am, you know, just just trucking. I'm feeling good right now because I can't wait to hear about your interview this week. Tell me what we have in store. Sheila Najad. Sheila Najad is a community organizer, activist, and now a mayoral candidate in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There's a lot of news coming out of Minneapolis this week. Big news. The Derek Chauvin verdict came in, and there are questions about, you know, whether and how uh, the after effects can inspire change in this country. Um, but she is right in the heart of it. You know, Minneapolis has been almost like this um, test case for our country, right? All eyes have been on this one city and this one case. And uh, the conversations coming out of that city, whether it's, you know, about defunding the police or, um, you know, whether or not we should have police, you know, she's really at the cutting edge of that. She's been on the streets, involved in the protests. She was describing, you know, confrontations that she's had with with the cops and her philosophy on why these things escalate and why they did escalate and her criticisms of the current mayor, uh, Jacob Fry. So we talk about all that stuff. And, um, you know, she's very progressive. She's sort of on the on the Bernie Sanders spectrum of uh, of things. And she's got a definite vision for how things should be. And, um, you know, that's what we're kind of all groping around for is like, what's what do we do? What's next? What what should things look like? Well, it's a perfect conversation for this week because I think so many of us, frankly, everyone felt such a sense of, of relief in the immediate, which is sad in and of itself that, that we were concerned about how this was going to turn out. But very quickly after that relief, you felt a sense of, well, what now? And mm -hmm. this was some form of justice, uh, delayed justice and not complete justice, but justice nonetheless. But how do we make sure that that continues and carries over and that this doesn't happen again? And and what do we do to affect real change? And so this is a perfect time to have this forward-looking conversation. The only thing that I will add about this week that I felt, and I just want to get into the interview because you guys have talked about things in a much more nuanced way and much more interesting way. But the thing that, that stuck out to me this week that I just keep thinking about is, you know, we, we saw this reporting about President Biden reaching out to George Floyd's family and his daughter and his brother has been interviewed a lot about how uh, President Biden has really just given the Floyd family so much time. And obviously as the empathetic president that he is, that's not surprising. Um, but what I kept thinking about when I heard that he had called the family after the verdict was, don't you just feel like a President Trump would have called Derek Chauvin's family and offered his sympathy yeah. to them. Like that's just, I just like feel like mm -hmm. that's what would have happened. And maybe that's the, the vipified version of what Trump would have done, but it just felt like such a real shift. And I just want to keep pointing out as it happens, sort of how back to a good form of normal we are and how nice that is to feel. Well, exactly. And you know, that we are now in a kind of Biden administration atmosphere in this country Everything that happens, like this verdict and even this mayoral race that uh, Sheila Najat is going to talk about and we're going to talk about with her, it's all going to be taking place in a new context. And 
you know, and there are a lot of newly radicalized young voters out there who want to see something different happen. And that's sort of what this interview is about. I also want to just point out that I don't know too much about Minneapolis. And so I learned a little bit about that. But what I did learn is that a large uh, part of the African-American community is in the north side of Minneapolis. So the north side's where, where that happens. And um, it just so happens that this week was the five-year anniversary of Prince mm. dying, um, tragically, and you know one of my favorite musicians ever. And there is actually a new documentary coming out called Mr. Nelson on the North Side. And it is a look at his own kind of evolution as a musician, but also as a result of hanging out at a community center on the North Side that was called The Way. And The Way came out of uh, the race riots in Minneapolis in 1967. There had been already previously big racial strife in that city. And one of the fallouts was that a community center was built for young people. And all these young musicians started hanging out there and forming bands. And one of the bands was called The Family. And Prince was brought in as this sort of young kid who wanted to play guitar. And he was so shy that he couldn't even look at the crowd. He would look at his own amplifier or whatever. And so, and so I'm thinking, you know, we're at hopefully at a new dawn where we can have, uh, you know, creative foment uh, in the positive direction. And we have been through so many cycles of pain and change in this country, and we're going through one right now, and we have been going through one. But, you know, just to get my own sort of sense of direction in the world, you know, knowing that Prince was from the North Side and that, you know, 20% of the population in Minneapolis is African-American, but 60% of the, you know, killings by police officers are African-Americans. And that disparity is kind of like what we're all aiming at right now, what we're talking about, what we're thinking about, what we're trying to deal with and solve, right? So that's what this conversation's about. And just to give you a little reference. This is why I love you, Joe, because I never would have thought of the tie-in and you did that for us. And it's such an interesting look at a city that I think so many people on the coasts have not spent time in. And those two things are Unrelated, but related. So thank you for connecting them for me in my mind. And I definitely want to watch that and learn more about that and go listen to Prince today because that feels do like it. the right thing to do. Do we get into the interview? Let's go. Today, our guest is Sheila Najad, community organizer, activist, and now mayoral candidate in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Like everybody in this country, and especially in Minneapolis, her life uh, was transformed by the murder of George Floyd last May. And this week, she was on the street in the city when Officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder and manslaughter charges. And I just want to pluck a little quote off of her campaign site, Sheila for the People, it's called. Uh, she says on here, 2020 changed me. I have always believed in the possibility of a revolution, of a more just world. This past year, the people of Minneapolis taught me what walking toward justice really looks like. Sheila Najad, hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So you were an eyewitness this week. You were on the street. You've seen 
borne witness to everything that's happened this year, and this was a big moment. Take me into what happened on Tuesday. I know there was like a kind of a 90-minute window there that people talk about between, you know, the report that a verdict was imminent and the actual verdict itself. Where were you and what was sort of the scene and the kind of feeling that was was happening there? Yeah, I think there was this feeling of everyone really holding their breath. And we've been holding our breath, it feels like, for months, right? But really, in the last um, few days of wondering, when will this verdict come down? And in the day of when the guilty verdict was announced, I think everyone exhaled. It wasn't necessarily celebration for a lot of folks, I think, because um, what I've heard and what I've seen is that this guilty verdict does not translate to justice, right? It's like the bare minimum that our system can provide. But, but what I saw on the ground that day was our city under military occupation right now. So we've got this uh, project being led by our mayor, Mayor Fry, and our governor, Tim Walls, called Operation Safety Net. And it's this mega law enforcement combo of state patrol, National Guard, local police departments, and county police departments. And now they've brought in police from Ohio and Nebraska as well. So while people were exhaling as this verdict came down and this this small shred of recognition that, in fact, this was murder, right? Right. Well, what people saw with their own eyes on a video. Exactly. Yeah. And and I remember I saw an interview with someone who was at George Floyd Square after the, the verdict came down and she said, well, I'm not happy right now, but I'm relieved to know that I wasn't crazy. Yeah. This whole year, I felt like I was crazy. And I think I think that's what a lot of folks felt like. Right. And I'll point out that you wrote an op-ed, you were against uh, the mayor and the governor bringing in the National Guard, right? And, yes. And their idea was this could set off a conflagration if it goes the wrong way, and we want to be prepared because the city got torched last time they felt. I mean, this, I'm just stating their <laughs> probable point of view. So yeah. what's wrong with that? Well, I think what's wrong with it is it's the wrong solution. So what's happening right now is that the people of Minneapolis are in a state of grief and demanding justice after the murder of George Floyd. And what happened last summer was people took the streets demanding justice and grieving and were met by immense police violence. I, I myself was shot by MPD with a um, tear gas canister when I was out as a street medic in May. And since that period of time, nothing has changed in calls for justice, in calls for change to policing. In fact, our leadership has doubled down on this law and order uh, perspective, saying we need more police to get safe. And so in this moment, when a community is completely traumatized, militarizing it in order to protect property, and that's where these National Guard are stationed, right? They're in front of Target. They're in front of the Apple store. (laughs) They're in front of, um, they even erected a fence around uh, the statue in front of U.S. Bank Stadium. And that really shows you what our current establishment values. And in my mind, if I were the mayor, the way I would respond to these protests is, number one, hot food and bathrooms at protest sites. Because when people are grieving, 
you don't put someone out there with a long gun, you feed them, right? That's what happens when people die. And that's how you support small businesses. Um, and we need to see real commitments to change. And, and organizers have put them out through, through my own organization that I work with, Reclaim the Block. We led this process called the People's Budget. Through George Floyd Square, they have 24 demands for justice for supporting Black communities. You know, there have been so many opportunities for our elected leaders to step up and meet people's grief with actions towards justice. And instead, they've doubled down on re-traumatizing folks to the tune of, of millions of dollars, too, right? Right. So the current mayor, uh, Jacob Fry, is sort of a interesting figure in all of this. And I'll let I'll ask you about him. But, you know, he first sort of set off some news when this all first happened, because there were a lot of calls to abolish the police department or defund it. or And he sort of drew the line there. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he's a, a liberal Democratic politician. Right. I think that was when I first heard of this idea, frankly, mm -hmm. about abolishing the police department. This was novel to me. I'm sure in certain circles it wasn't. But Tell me a little bit about what that means, because I think there's a lot of people out there and I'm one of them who's sort of like, what does that what would that look like? You know, what what does that mean? And uh, and there's also defund the police, which is similar, but not the same. Maybe you can educate me a little bit about what it means to and, and whether or not which one of those you're for. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. So defund is a tactic towards abolition. And what abolition means in talking about policing is that we have not only gotten rid of police, but eliminated the underlying conditions that create the need for police. So Ruthie Gilmore, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore likes to say that abolition is about presence, not absence, and presence of life-affirming institutions. So to understand how we get there, we have to understand what causes crime and violence. And the majority of causes of crime and violence is not about individual moral failure. It happens when people don't get their basic needs met, whether that's material needs that lead to property theft or not getting comprehensive sex ed that teaches folks how to have healthy relationships that leads to domestic violence, right? But we're not investing in that prevention at the same scale as we invest in policing. And we also need to trace back to the roots of policing, which in the United States grew out of slave patrols and here in Minnesota grew out of um, attempted genocide of indigenous peoples. So what defund means is defund does not stand on its own. It means invest in community. So in Minneapolis here, we're trying to push forward this charter amendment. So our charter is like our city's constitution and right now it requires us to have a police department of a certain size. And we're trying to push through this amendment that would allow us to strike the police department and instead put in a department of public safety that uses a public health approach to violence prevention and dealing with harm. So that's one, one practical policy step towards abolition. And I think the last thing to consider is the alternative to defund or abolition would be reform. And we have a group here who I've been a part of called MPD 150 that did a people's history of the Minneapolis Police Department. And what we found is that the Minneapolis Police Department has really been 
the poster child for reform. You know, whether it's implicit bias training, body cams, you know, Derek Chauvin, that type of chokehold was already against uh, department policy. Reform doesn't work. And we've been trying it, not just for a few decades, but for a long time. The first person who led a national call for we need more training, better training to reduce police violence was Harry Truman. Mm-hmm. So, so to think that we're just one or two reforms away from eradicating police violence, to me, that seems more far-fetched than the idea that if we invest in what people need to be safe and well and connected to one another, that we're going to be able to feel safer. Right. Well, let's back up for a second. What Two things that people listening to this podcast well, one thing they may already know is that the Justice Department is now going to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department to look into abuses. Uh, they're going to be analyzing it as a police department, not whether there should be one, right? But that's mm-hmm. a step to, and I don't know how that will connect to what you want to do. I mean, if they, the general policy has been, I think, if they discover that this police department can't manage itself, then they bring in some sort of federal monitor or something and try to force reform on them or at least discipline, right? Um, The other thing I want to point out is that I saw the New York Times reported just the situation in Minneapolis is that black people account for 20% of the population and they make up more than 60% of the victims of police shootings, right? Mm -hmm. So this discrepancy is just what we're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm. But your position is not, is like reform didn't work and now we're going to have this other thing possibly, uh, Department of Public Safety. What is the kind of support for that in Minneapolis and in the surrounding voting districts? You know, Joe, I have been surprised how strong support has stayed. So when I started running for mayor in January, started calling, you know, residents, voters, potential voters all over the city, and I had expected a lot of backpedaling because what we saw in our mainstream media this fall was this huge pro-law and order swell that came up alongside a rising crime, which we saw happening nationally. But when I've been calling voters, many people have said to me, if you don't want to defund the Minneapolis Police Department, I won't vote for you. Or my number one issue is building alternatives to police. So we have seen pretty good, consistent support. And, and especially after the, the behavior of the last week was horrible. In Brooklyn Center, um, where Dante Wright was killed, the violence against protesters was, I'm like having a little bit of trouble even speaking about it because it was so extreme. I was there as a um, street medic again the first night and People were shot at close range with these marker rounds, which can be deadly if shot at close range. And just seeing the extreme levels of force being used, you know, six law enforcement officers stacked three on the bottom and three on the top, all emptying their mace canisters at the same time. Mm. It Really, the system has helped people continue to believe that it will not keep us safe, right? And I think the people of Minneapolis, unfortunately, have to be reminded of that over and over again as we continue to see police violence. You know, another black man was killed by MPD in January, um, Dalal Eid. 
I don't, I don't need to get into the re-traumatization for folks listening to the podcast, but um, the, the support is there. And I think what's needed is figuring out what comes next. And that's the challenging part of any defund or abolition work, right, is figuring out what comes next. And we've had policing as our primary model of addressing violence for 150 years. And we're just not going to come up with the solution in six months or one year or four years, right? It's going to take time. But what we know is that what we're doing doesn't work, right? So creating space for experimentation, uh, for developing new models, for building off of existing ways that communities already keep each other safe, that's where we need to go to right now and, and holding faith in this um, in this conviction that that's the only way forward, right? ask you something. Do you know any police officers in Minneapolis? Do you have like any relationships with anybody who's on the force? Have you ever had a dialogue or conversation with, with uh, well, like, you know, the current police chief has been, you know, at least on the surface, s- supportive of the verdict, for instance, and he's, you know, hoping to use that as some kind of pivot. But um, you, you described them on the streets when they were approaching protesters and they seem menacing. And I'm sure that they probably are also have their own kind of emotional response to what's going on with Chauvin this week. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's been your experience with trying to talk to them directly? I, you know, I think it gets to this issue of whether there's good cops or bad cops. And in the end, what I've seen is that it comes down to the system being stronger than any personal officer's conviction. So I've talked with the chief before, you know, he came out when we were having uh, actually the first protest that led to reclaim the block being established. We had a protest in the mayor's office. The mayor saw us at the end of the hallway, turned around, walked away, but the chief Mm. came out and talked to us. Um, So I've talked to him before, but, Again, I think what we see is over and over again, the system of policing is stronger than any reform attempts. And also, the mayor and the chief have the power right now to ban tear gas and less lethal weapons being used in Minneapolis. Our city council does not under our current charter, Mm -hmm. and they have not done that. Right. You know, they also have the power to move traffic enforcement, which is what Um, Dwayne Wright was killed during a traffic stop out of MPD and they've chosen to not do that as well, you know, so. And what's, tell me, tell me what the significance of separating traffic enforcement from regular policing is. Yeah, there are um, strong racial disparities in Minneapolis of who gets stopped for traffic violations or suspected traffic violations and it's black folks are stopped at much higher rates than white folks. And uh, it's just a situation that we don't need someone with a gun to respond to. You know, mm-hmm. it's usually just writing a ticket. Um, it really should be, if we talk about life-affirming institutions, it should be about getting people services. And the mayor and the and the chief a couple years ago, instead of choosing to make traffic enforcement its own unit, started this voucher program, which if someone gets pulled over for a broken taillight, which Philando Castile was killed, Um, during a broken taillight stop, 
they got a voucher to get it fixed. But they only put $25,000 into that program, which administratively in the city is like nothing. So I, I read the city budget every year as part of my job and is part of what motivated me to run for mayor because I saw actually how much resources were put behind each of these supposed remedies to the issues we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Um, you grew up in the area, right? Yep. I grew up um, in one of the suburbs, Woodbury, but I've been in Minneapolis for 12 years. Right. Well, and I know that uh, the north side is sort of like uh, largely African-American concentrated. Um, I saw that there was a uh, documentary coming out about princes, you know, coming out of that neighborhood and sort of the um, the community center that came out of the civil rights uh, protests of the late 60s that he was part of. But um, where do the cops live? Ah, great question. So I think it's something 90% of officers I'd have to double check that, but live outside of the city. And that's because of a former sheriff turned representative, Rich Stanek, who went to the legislature and changed the law so there's no longer a residency requirement. Mm. So some cops don't, they're they're not even in Minneapolis, some of them. They're not in Minneapolis. They, you know, the cost of the police department, if you want to look at the numbers, is 35% of our general fund. But those who are receiving those payments don't contribute to our tax base, you know? Uh, but that's, that's, shouldn't be the, the driving argument. I don't think. And a lot of people say, Oh yes, there should be this requirement that police live in the neighborhood. Cause then they'll have relationships. Yeah, but what do you make of that? It, it has not proven to be true. You know, Rakia Boyd was killed by, a police officer who who lived in her neighborhood, who ran walked the beat on her block all the time. And it's, again, we see that the system is more powerful than mm-hmm. any sort of relationship building. And, and if it comes down to people need to have stronger relationships with those who give them services, let's connect folks with more social workers. Let's put money into more youth programming. Yeah. You know, two years ago members of our park board and some educators and union leaders came to the mayor and said, Hey, we need more money for youth programming. The fastest way to stop a bullet is with a job, right? Because a lot of the violence we see, a lot of the property theft comes from youth and, and their request got denied because the mayor didn't want to raise property taxes. And instead, what do we see this year? (laughs) <laughs> our our city government commissioned helicopters to patrol the city to find youth who were stealing cars and arrest them. And in the end, they only arrested four people. And what will arresting someone do to solve the poverty they're experiencing? You know? Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I digress. Plus the resources of flying helicopters around. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your own personal activism and where, you know, how that evolved. You described being from the suburb. Is that northwest, east, south? Yeah, it's east. Yeah. So what was your own upbringing like and how did you come to kind of, uh, and I don't want to embarrass you, but you're in your early 30s, right? Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm 
kind of a, a gentleman about age, but um, uh, what? Uh, tell me about your upbringing and what you know. What did your parents do, and what kind of world did you originally come out of? Yeah, both of my parents are teachers, so I was a nerd from the start. My personal motto is actually from the streets to the spreadsheets which has guided all of my work all my life. But I, uh, my dad is an immigrant. He's from Iran. And my mom is mixed. She's Anishinaabe and Norwegian-Swedish. They met at a bar in Fargo, wow. uh, which is where <laughs> I was born. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. So yeah. I, I grew up, I went to nerd school. I went to a school called the Math and Science Academy. Was very into math, very into social change and um, ended up getting my undergrad in, in economics and then moved to Minneapolis in 2009. Mm -hmm. And that's where my, my activism really took off. So I was getting my master's degree in public policy. I had recently come out as queer. It was 2010. So it was like the high point of national LGBT rights debates and in Minnesota, we were in back-to-back -back years of a group trying to ban same-sex marriage and then a campaign to legalize it. And I was at this public policy school, and there were no classes about LGBT policy at all. So I banded together with this group of five other angry queer people. And we said, we, we formed a group called the Sylvia Rivera Society. And went and asked the faculty, hey, why aren't you teaching about LGBT rights? We're here. It's a huge moment for LGBT rights in the country. Students should be learning about this. And what we found out was the faculty and staff just were unfamiliar and uncomfortable with the language around sexual orientation and gender identity. So we held the first ever Queer and Trans 101 training at the university and totally blew some minds. <laughs> and, and then we saw a shift in curriculum and educators felt more comfortable including LGBT um, policies, topics in their curriculum. We had a lot of other students come up to us and say, hey, I thought I was alone here. Um, and, and so that was my really first time I saw the power of a small group of people to change big systems and institutions. And, and that, that, that gave me the organizing bug and I haven't been able to <laughs> stop since then. Yeah. And when you moved, uh, you said you moved to um, Minneapolis 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in community organizing in, in Minneapolis? And what was your first impression of coming back basically to the city where you had more or less grown up or near, um, you know, and maybe having a different impression of what you saw? Yeah. Well, what I, one thing I love about Minneapolis and why I can't leave is because we have such a vibrant community organizing scene and social justice um, community. So coming back, I went to grad or to my undergrad in Morris, Minnesota, which is very rural out in the country. And coming back to the city, I was just so my heart was warmed, right? Because there's so many ways to plug in. And the way I really got into organizing was just going to every single meeting I could 
every single event I could. And for folks who are interested in getting involved in organizing, that would be my advice is just start showing up and then figure out where is your personal capacity to fit in in a certain place. And, and I ended up going to a lot of things around policing after the murder of Jamar Clark and kept showing up and showing up. And finally, one day, um, someone who's now a dear friend of mine said, hey, do you want to help me facilitate the next meeting? Maybe you could make the agenda and run the meeting. I said, oh, yeah, sure. And, and after that, it grew and grew. But, you know, people are always out here demanding justice, even in the cold you know, where yeah. protesters of Line Three right now have been have been living out there all winter, um, and and what I saw last week in the protests in Brooklyn Center was that folks have become really fearless. You know, the the state tries to scare us and intimidate us. Right, there's no other reason for someone in fatigues and a long gun outside of Walmart to be there for any other reason than to scare us. And people did not go home. People did not hide when folks were protesting outside of Brooklyn Center. People were, were protecting one another and taking care of one another. And um, yeah, that's, that's why I stay here and keep fighting too. Where does Jacob Fry stand in all of this? He's the current mayor. He had some conflicts with the former president, Donald Trump, and he was seen as, you know, trying to defend his his turf against this, um, you know, the right wing white supremacist uh, president. And, you know, I don't see him as like completely opposed to your positions. How Has he been a defender of any of your causes? Has he uh, how do you see him on the spectrum of, uh, you know, a helper or not a helper? Or yeah. is he part of the institution? You're mentioning these like, you know, these kind of uh, militant institutions. I mean, he doesn't seem like a militant guy, but. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that's why he got elected. Um, but he has consistently advocated for this funding, for more policing. He is the one who asked the governor for a $1 million barbed wire fence to be put up around the government center during the trial, which they obliged. So I think... Uh, well, he to, to I'm not <laughs> defending him, but I will say that after the initial events of uh, you know May and June last year, uh, you know he's got a city to not have fall apart, and that was on him to some degree to not you know some people criticized him for not managing that properly or whatever. So my question would be, when did you see an opportunity and a reason? to run against him and let's get him out of there. What, what's, what's the origin of your, of your motivation? Well, I've been running campaigns for safety beyond policing at City Hall for years. So 2020 was not the first year that the public asked Mayor Fry to do something about the violent MPD. In fact, we have offered him solutions for years. Every budget cycle, we've come to him and the city council and said, hey, these are all the ways that you can reduce violence across the board in Minneapolis and adding, I think he's added $6 million to the special operations over the last, his term. That is not how we get to reduce crime and violence. And, and what we've seen in Minneapolis, so Mayor Fry ran on a platform of ending homelessness, 
and criticizing the previous mayor, Mayor Hodges, for failing at addressing police violence and mishandling mm-hmm. relationships with protesters. That is that was his platform. Right. That was his criticism against her, and I think um, helped helped bring him to victory. And so homelessness has skyrocketed. I live a couple of blocks down from this park called Powderhorn Park, where this summer um, hundreds of people were living in tents in the park. And if you walk down a few blocks, you see what has become now the emblem of Mayor Fry's tenure in office, which is luxury apartment buildings. And there's this luxury apartment building just a few blocks from the park that was empty all summer. And to me, that is a moral failure of elected leadership to leave people outside while there's empty housing stock and there were empty hotels that he could have, you know, talk about creating safety in the city. Giving people a place to stay is is safe. So I think Mayor Fry has really passed on opportunities to help people feel like they don't have to take to the streets because what caused buildings to burn was not the absence of a barbed wire fence. What caused buildings to burn was the escalation of MPD in violence against protesters. And I was there when the first brick was thrown against a police officer. I was protesting. I was on the sidewalk. But it was in response to probably 50 police officers exiting their cars with giant wooden billy clubs and big bear mace canisters, right? So so I was motivated to run <laughs> um, really this last year as I cracked his proposed budget and you know, we had been meeting with his staff and talking with them. And I saw that he had no changes to policing proposed in his budget. Um, no defunding. No defunding. Not even defunding, though, but not even any reform attempts. His reform attempt that he had put in there was this electronic monitoring system that compiles data on complaints against officers, which is not what we need in this moment. And, and so I... Um, Ask my community, who's going to run for mayor? Do you want me to run for mayor? If so, what kind of campaign would you trust? What kind of campaign would feel good to you? And people got back to me and said, yes, you should run for mayor. We need someone who's actually connected to people on the ground. And you should run a campaign that's actually driven by values and not just um, sound bites or these kind of platitudes that we've seen a lot from politicians. Let me ask you something, just sort of a hypothetical. Politicians love hypothetical questions. (laughs) So had you been mayor when something like this happened, the George Floyd murder, people are on the streets, they're pissed, you know, how would you have dealt with it differently? Yeah, thank you. Well, I would hope that everything would have been different in my term up until that point. I certainly would not have continued to invest in the militarization of the police. But the way I would respond, so when you think about when uprisings happen like this summer, when people take the streets, it's because of grief and justice denied. So first of all, let's think about grief. How do you deal with grief? Like I said, hot food and bathrooms. That's how you take care of folks. 
That's how you de-escalate situations. I would have free mental health counseling immediately deployed. Uh, deployed as fast as they deploy the National Guard, right? At every park building and every school for youth, for any residents who want to go in and process. Free kids activities because our kids are traumatized right now. And most importantly, a clear commitment on how power and funding will be moved away from law enforcement and into the community long term and making a portion of that available for immediate redistribution. Say this is emergency funding, just like they authorize millions of dollars for police response. Say we're going to do this in immediate community redistribution led by black community um, and, and not have police officers. This seems so obvious, but not have police officers show up and shoot at people with so-called less lethal weapons, mace people, because I've been there. You know, what, what, what the clips on the news don't show is the moment of escalation. And the moment of escalation, if you're on the ground, is when law enforcement escalates. So after two nights of extreme violence um, last week in Brooklyn Center, they had a night where, okay, the National Guard stood back. They weren't at this double fence that they had erected. And guess what? There wasn't violence that night because things weren't escalated. So I think there's no perfect solution, but there is a way to reduce harm and reduce trauma. And it, it gets to who do our leaders care about and what do they care about? And when we see mass arrests, like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, it's clear that, yes, they had a protest response that stopped things by 11 p.m., but at what cost? You know, mm -hmm. what's going on in has been going on in Minneapolis and what we saw this week. It's all kind of every all eyes are on Minneapolis in the last year. It's something of a test case for our ideas and what we want. You know what I mean? The debate in this mayoral race, I'm surprised there's, it's been written that there's not that many people running or who, not many people have thrown their hat in the ring and partially because it's so daunting of a thing. I mean, it's like taking on a burning building, in a, not literal, but in a metaphorical <laughs> way. And um, so, but you have a pretty, you have a, a very progressive vision, putting aside the abolition or defunding of the police. Uh, you're proposing to decriminalize sex work, mm -hmm. uh, legalize drugs. And you've also said at one point, maybe up the road, a universal basic income. And, uh, and it's all sort of on the, um, for people to pay attention mostly to national politics on the Bernie Sanders side of the equation, who I imagine you probably had more affinity for than Joe Biden. But, um, and I'm, and so on top of that, we're going to have a department of public safety in this vision. Um, how long, how long do you think it will take to get to that? I mean, that's a pretty, that's a lot, you know, I mean, that's a radical as you say, revolutionary transformation. And you are in your early 30s, so you've got time. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, do you think that uh, in our current situation that uh, people are ready for that? Do you think this is the moment? I mean, Joe Biden's president and, you know, he sort of doesn't look like he's a radical guy, but he's been doing some pretty interesting things. But I don't, I don't know how you feel about him. But do you... Uh, Think this can be done like in 10 years? 
So there's so many layers to it, like decriminalization here has to happen at the state level, right? So, so many mm-hmm. factors play in. And, but I think we can start moving towards it now. And I think if we don't start moving towards it now, we're never going to get to that world. And so there are some things that will take a long time for us to change, like racism, right? No matter where you move the city money, we're not going to see a change in, in racist violence until there's a change in society, right? But there are things, changes we can move right now that will materially benefit the lives of people in the city and keep them safer. So for example, speaking of drugs, right now this summer, our county opened emergency shelter hotels for people during the pandemic, but they're sober hotels. So if people come from living outside and move into the hotels and they uh, come in one day smelling like pot, which is legal in how many states, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's legal here if you have health insurance and can get a medical license, right? They got kicked out. They got kicked back on the street. So there, there are places that we can start right now like that, like mm-hmm. that form of, of soft decriminalization, I guess, that would, would materially change people's lives, would lead to benefits for years to come. And I do think Minneapolis is ready because I've seen it with my own eyes. In the past week, I've seen thousands of people out in the snow, in the rain, while they're being shot at, not running away. And to me, that says, yeah, we're ready for departmental change, right? And we know that the big change is going to have to happen in the hearts and minds and changing our thought patterns of how we, who we turn to for help. But yeah, I think we're ready for change. I've seen it. Um, I've heard it on the phones. I've seen it on the streets. And mm-hmm. um, it's not going to be generational. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's generational, too. I mean, that's uh, and I, you know, I want to close by saying this. I'm a little ambivalent about telling you this, but I'm uh, about to turn 50. And I'm hoping <laughs> that in addition to all the other equalities we can seek, we can also uh, get over ageism. As soon as you turn 50, you're like, let's get over ageism. Um, But, you know, I will say as somebody uh, who's this age, um, I'm already mind blown by how much change has already happened. And it's so quickly. I'm talking in the the last year, um, just watching the protests, the the voices that are coming out and being listened to. It's like there's a new dialogue in this country that was not there before. And I didn't think, you know, if 10 years ago you had told me any of this would have happened, well, first of all, if you told me about Trump, I would have like thought about moving. Um, but, uh, but you know, we're in this roiled time. And um, the fact that we're even having like somebody like Andrew Yang talking about a universal basic income on the national stage is a huge sea change. And I don't mean to like get on a soapbox here, but you know, George W. Bush was on TV this week, and it reminded me of that presidency and that time when I was reporting on that White House at the time. And, you know, back then, you couldn't even run for president if you'd smoked pot or admitted to it. OK, we are in a completely new world and there's a new generation coming up who's saying, hey, we can reinvent the future. And so I, I'm, I'm happy to have brought you on here to talk about these things. 
And uh, I think there's a lot of little issues to be worked out, obviously. But um, thank you for enlightening us about your city. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That, my friends, is our podcast this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Sheila Najad, for coming on the program. Thanks to our co-host, Fantastique, Emily Jane Fox, and our talented producer, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for all the work they do. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe. Go to Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get it. Subscribe. Leave a nice review. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. We will see you next week.